Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 19 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And don't worry, guys, I have not been raided by the feds yet, and that's because I discovered a life hack the other day. Uh, apparently, if you just change your Wi-Fi network name and your passwords and whatnot to Hunter Biden's laptop, the feds won't want to mess with you. <laughs> so I went ahead and did that. I changed my Wi-Fi. No, my Wi-Fi, actually, I changed to uh, Hunter Biden's nudes. So they're definitely not going to want to look at that. Um, and then I'm changing my uh, my PlayStation Network name is definitely going to be uh, is going to be um, what what's the good uh, number associated with Hunter Biden? Hunter Biden uh, sixty nine, maybe something like that. That'll be a, a probably a good name to change to. Change it to anything to Hunter Biden, and they won't touch you. In fact, you may actually be hired to give a, a lecture for a college campus. You may, in, in addition, of course, to uh, getting to work for a Chinese company, a Ukrainian company. You get all the perks in the world if you're Hunter Biden. That, of course, ties directly into the first topic with which we are going to open the show today. Uh, we're going to focus, for the most part of today's show, we're going to be responding to Biden's not State of the Union address, his joint address, address to a joint session of Congress. That's the thing to remember with a president's first, what would be their State of the Union, is technically not considered a State of the Union. It's not under that label. And certainly the spectacle we saw last Wednesday was not by any means whatsoever a, um, a State of the Union address, just in terms of the, the way it was carried out. But we're going to be talking about the substance of the speech, including, most importantly, the massive, what is it, $4 trillion, $6 trillion spending plan he's proposing. We are going to be breaking that down. And we are also going to react to the quite controversial response on behalf of the GOP by South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. So for the intro, of course, we wanted to start with something else that happened on Wednesday morning. Early in the wee hours of the morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, April 28th. So this is the same day Biden gives his speech as he's he's definitely still napping. He's not going to wake up until like 10 in the morning or something. Federal agents, FBI agents, raided the apartment and offices of Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor, as he is known. He, of course, was most famously mayor of New York City during 9-11, considered a national and international hero for his leadership after that. This is from the New York Times. Federal investigators on Wednesday seized cell phones and computers from Rudolph W. Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, who became President Donald J. Trump's personal lawyer. FBI agents executed search warrants around 6 a.m. at Mr. Giuliani's apartment on Madison Avenue and his Park Avenue office in Manhattan, carting away the electronic devices, Mr. Giuliani confirmed in a statement. So this was another, uh, you could call it a pre-dawn raid, basically. This is already kind of drawing comparisons to what they did to Roger Stone back in, uh, I think it was 2019, when they, of course, raided him at his Florida estate. And what this boiled down to, ostensibly, according to initial reporting about this, the claims are that this raid happened because Rudy may not have filed with what's known as the FARA Act, which is the um, Foreign Agents Registration Act. They're alleging that he may have done some lobbying or some kind of business with the Ukrainian government without registering as a foreign agent. Uh, and this, of course, it, we all know that that's garbage from the very beginning. You can just tell this is definitely not legitimately the reason why they're doing this at all. I mean, first, they're ostensibly tying this to his efforts to the, the Trump campaign, the Trump legal team's efforts to call out the corruption of Hunter Biden, which we all know, you know, Hunter Biden served with the on the board of this very shady Ukrainian en energy company, Burisma Holdings. And Trump basically said, hey, uh, you guys should look into this. You know, he served on this board while his father was vice president. There's video evidence of Joe Biden admitting that he used his influence as vice president to fire the uh, prosecutor general, basically Ukraine's equivalent of the attorney general, who was investigating this company and its board members, including Hunter Biden. There's just clear corruption. 
And this is, of course, why Trump got impeached the first time, because he dared to suggest that we investigate Joe Biden. And Rudy, of course, was very quick to speak out about this. He talked about this uh, in his very first interview after the raid with Tucker Carlson, of course. It would be better for your first interview after something like this. And going back to the joke I opened the uh, show with, he said this one thing about the raid. He talked about the raid, and to the credits of the agents— he did say that the agents were uh, professional and polite with him. They didn't, you know, try to strong arm her or anything. So that's good that they at least showed that much decency. But he then said this. The only time they got perturbed is at the end of the surge when they had taken about, I'd say, seven or eight electronic items of mine, which is what they took, and, and two of someone else's. I, uh, th- they weren't taking the three hard drives, which, of course, are electronic devices. They just mimic the, the computer. I said, well, don't you want these? And they said, what are they? I said, those are Hunter Biden's hard drives. And they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I said, are you sure you don't want them? I mean, the, the warrant required them to take it. And they said, no, no. And I, one last time I said, don't you think you should take it? to comp-? And they said, no. Now, Hunter Biden's hard drives fall within the scope of the subpoena. The subpoena required them to take all electronics. But they decided to leave that behind. And they also were completely content to rely on my word that these were Hunter Biden's hard drives. I mean, they could have been Donald Trump's. They could have been Vladimir Putin's. So and, he, should, he should have just said that all of his electronic devices were you know, things that belonged to Hunter Biden <laughs> or had Hunter Biden's pics and videos on them. Exactly. Yeah. And to be completely fair, I don't blame the agents who would want to see those pictures of Hunter Biden with, you know, Russian hookers and, you know, crack pipes. Who, who would want to look at that? You know, I don't blame them for that. But either way, this that is the really scary thing that this is supposedly about, you know, his interference with Ukraine or whatever. But they take his word. Uh, yeah. A, they take his word for it. But B, assuming those really are the Hunter Biden hard drives, I have no reason to believe that he's lying about that. The fact that they really will not take those that just further proves what this is really about especially when you consider one other detail about this raid that this this part kind of got swept under the rug obviously you know giuliani being the big uh banner name the name in bright lights neon lights when it came to this uh, story being broken that same morning fbi agents also searched the washington area home of victoria tunsing and her husband joe degenova a husband and wife a lawyer team that also served on president trump's legal team to combat voter fraud in the 2020 election. That was another big uh, task that Rudy kind of spearheaded after the 2020 election, in addition to serving as President Trump's personal lawyer for a couple of years prior. So that right there kind of shows you what this is all about. There's that if it was just Rudy, like, okay, whatever, let's see. We know this is probably as garbage as the Russian collusion hoax, but let's see how this plays out. But they also went after two other lawyers who were also part of the efforts to combat voter fraud when it was apparent that voter fraud was taking place in 2020. It's so obvious what this is all about. It's so obvious that this is just cracking down on those who dared to question the narrative about the 2020 election and the fact that it was sto- or they, they question the supposed official story that Biden won legitimately because I guess people just got tired of Trump. No, we all know that that election was stolen. We saw it happen on election night. There was overwhelming evidence in the days and weeks and months afterward. But Biden is in power now. He sees power. The Democrats have control of Congress, and they're back in control of the deep state, and they are going to take full advantage of it. Well, and it also serves a purpose of sending a message to Republicans, because what Republicans see is that if someone as powerful like Rudy Giuliani can get raided by the FBI for stepping out of line, for going against the narrative, 
than anybody can. And uh, they're, what they're trying to do is send a message to Republicans that we have enough laws on the books to where we can dig up dirt on anybody. The FBI can raid anybody's home. You know, if Rudy Giuliani isn't safe from the FBI, then no one is. Exactly. The dude, again, was literally a national hero. He was Time Magazine's Person of the Year in 2001. He was given an honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth for his leadership. And this is a continuation of the tactics that were employed during the Trump administration. Remember, while Trump was president, we saw them do this to relative smaller beings like Carter Page, George Papadopoulos. Then they worked their way up, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone. And the big one at the time for the first four years, the big one was General Mike Flynn. They put through absolute hell. They basically tried to get that man literally executed before Trump finally pardoned him. Now they're going after DeGeneva, Tunsing, and Giuliani. And Tucker did summarize this as well on a monologue that he gave that Wednesday. So this was – he interviewed Giuliani uh, the following day. This is the part of the monologue Tucker gave that Wednesday after the news had broken about the raid on Giuliani. You know who it's not good to be? It's not good to be a Trump voter. That's very clear now. Watch this partisan federal prosecutor, a man who's completely out of control, explain on television that Republicans who so much as trespassed at the Capitol on January 6th will be treated like al-Qaeda. After the 6th, we had an inauguration on the 20th. So I wanted to ensure, and our office wanted to ensure that there was shock and awe that we could charge as many people as possible before the 20th. And it worked because we saw through media posts that people were afraid to come back to D.C. because they were like, if we go there, we're going to get charged. We wanted to take out those individuals that essentially were thumbing their noses at the, the public for what they did. Okay, that guy's a lunatic. He should not have power. But more to the point, what he just said is the opposite of justice. In a just system, you punish people for the crimes they committed equally with everyone else who has committed those crimes. You don't punish some people extra to send a political point or to deter future behavior that might inconvenience a political party, or to stop a dissent. That's exactly the truth. That's the point, is that this is further proof. Again, between this and the Chauvin verdict, you know, which happened just uh, about a week, literally just a little over a week before this, it's clear our judicial system is dead. It no longer is about the rule of law or the rights of the accused. It's about being weaponized, the judges and, and the, the system itself, being weaponized by bureaucrats, by the deep state, by those in power. And again, what they were able to do while Trump was still president, imagine what they're going to be able to do now that Biden is president. And this is this ties back to one more thing. You look back to at the list of people I just listed, you know, Stone, Papadopoulos, Flynn, now up to Giuliani. You could argue that what they did to all those first few guys, Flynn and uh, Carter Page and whatnot, that was a trial run for what they're doing to Giuliani now. But let's be honest, what they're doing to Giuliani now is a trial run in and of itself. Do we really think that Giuliani is the one they want? Come on. Who's the one they really want? No, and it should come as no surprise that Attorney General Merrick Garland just asked Congress for an additional $85 million in funding for the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office to go after so-called domestic terrorism. So, I mean, imagine all the dirt we could dig up on FBI agents and employees of the U.S. Attorney's Office if we had access to all their personal information and $85 million to hire private investigators to dig into their private life and, you know, reveal any secrets they have, any crimes they may have committed – uh, so he's wanting an additional $85 million uh, to basically conduct a witch hunt against Republicans, against people who supported Trump, who deny the legitimacy of the election in 2020, who maybe post things online. And basically what they're going to be doing is they're going to be using a good uh, good sum of this money to try to just basically go after shit posters, people who just go online and post nonsense, engaging in braggadocia against Democrats and against liberals. 
And I can definitely see them using part of this $85 million to do to them what was done to uh, terror suspects during the so-called War on Terror. And this is something that – and what's really really disappointing about Republicans about this is whenever Merrick Garland was requesting this additional funding, in addition to billions extra in funding for the Justice Department, Republicans, rather than attack him for essentially asking for money so he can go start a political witch hunt – they instead were bringing up stuff like, well, why didn't the Justice Department categorize the attack in 2016 on Congress, remember the, uh, the attack at the baseball game, as an act of terror? Why did they call it a suicide or a murder-suicide? Representative Robert Adderholt of Alabama raised early resistance against this budget proposal, saying that the Justice Department is prioritizing programs at the expense of important national needs, such as investigating foreign terrorist threats, prosecuting human trafficking, and protecting U.S. intelligence property against foreign government interference. All of those things are important, and we certainly shouldn't divert funds away from those things. But that's not what Merrick Garland is proposing. Merrick Garland wants additional extra money to, in addition to doing what the Justice Department was doing earlier regarding human trafficking and you know U.S. intelligence property theft. In addition to all that, he wants additional money so he can go after so-called domestic terrorists. And at, but you know, Adderholt, rather than push back against the need for that, he instead is arguing from a fiscal conservative position. This is what Republicans do all the time. Anytime that Democrats basically want money to go after Republicans, instead of arguing, no, you shouldn't be doing this at all, you shouldn't even be asking for this, they'll argue from a fiscally conservative position. Like, no, that's you're asking for too much money. Like, maybe if you ask for less money, maybe we could talk about it. And so this is this is why most people, most conservatives, really can't expect any protection from Republicans because they're mainly interested in penny pension. Exactly. And they also need to remember that, you know, that we on the right are completely outgunned because of nothing else. They have the media on their side as well. If this was if we had a fair media, this would be reported for what it is, that this is blatant political intimidation and partisan targeting of political opponents. But of course, the media is on their side. Another similarity between what happened to Giuliani and what happened to Roger Stone, as we all remember, Tucker talked about it in his monologue as well, that the deep state leaked the raid on Roger Stone to CNN so that CNN camera crews were there outside his house in the dark of dawn, like right before sunrise, to watch and record as FBI is pounding on his door saying, FBI, open up. And the same thing happened here. And Tucker again mentioned it, that the Lincoln Project was tipped off to the raid on Rudy Giuliani. And they were tweeting about it, mocking him like, ha ha, you're going to get raided. The feds are coming to your house. And then it, it happened. They work with the media. So you can't rely on the media to be truthful about this. The only people we can rely on are the ones who are being targeted. And going back to what I was saying, it's clear what their final target is, who they're – the head they really want on a silver platter. It's Donald Trump's. And this goes back to a, a, one of my favorite headlines ever in recent years, or I think just of all time, was, of course, from uh, Victor Davis Hanson, who wrote an article in the uh, – column in the Chicago Tribune titled, Trump has become the Democrats' great white whale. And this was back in uh, 2019. And obviously that's a literary reference. Again, if my little uh, bougie English minor side is going to come back out uh, again. Uh, I literally took an entire class on the book of Moby Dick by Herman Melville. I personally think that is the great American novel. It's the absolute greatest piece of literature to ever come out of American culture. And at the center of that novel is the character of Captain Ahab, one of my favorite fictional characters of all time, who is a madman. He's absolutely insane, but he's a great character with this deranged hunt for a whale that bit his leg off. But if anything, I will give the Democrats a little bit of credit. Their hatred of Trump is a bit more rational than a hatred of a wild animal because Trump completely pulled the curtain back on 
everything they were doing, everything the Uniparty was doing. Again, Republican leadership was never like Trump because he exposed how both parties were kind of in cahoots with each other this entire time to screw over the American people, the working class, to help their corporate donors bring in cheap labor or free trade and outsourcing jobs. Trump completely upended all that. And that's a genie that can't be put back in the bottle. Even though Trump was removed from office via voter fraud, they still can't undo everything that he did and that he exposed. They really just want to get their revenge on him. And again, even if they were to literally get him convicted of treason and have him executed, that would not stop what he has done, the movement he has started. But it would make them feel good about it. And there's an old meme that's been shared around. It's kind of a boomer meme, but I think it's true. And it's a meme, usually a a picture of President Trump looking badass, which is not a hard picture to find. And it says it's coming from his perspective. The caption we read, they're not really after me. They're after you. I'm just standing in the way. And it's true. The way they feel about Trump is how they feel about all of us American citizens, not just the 74 million who voted for Trump or more than 74 million, depending on voter fraud, but just Americans in general who don't despise this country. They think if you don't agree with us that America is a terrible, horrible, evil place that needs to be just completely demolished and turned into a multicultural utopia, you're part of the problem. And this was reflected in Biden's speech, which we will be coming back to for our main topic, when at one point in the speech, he declared that he was inaugurated shortly after, quote, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, end quote, obviously referring to the peaceful protests that happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And of course, you you can talk about the comparisons, the obvious, Glenn Greenwald did this. You can say, oh, so worse than 9-11, worse than Pearl Harbor worse than four assassinations of the commander-in-chief between the Civil War up to now from Lincoln to JFK, worse than World War I or World War II, worse than anything that has happened to the United States since the Civil War. No, uh, a bunch of boomers going into Nancy Pelosi's office and taking selfies. That's the worst thing to happen to our democracy. But the fact is they believe that. He believes that, and they are going to act as if that is true. They're going to act as if those of you who are at the Capitol just peacefully and patriotically protesting— a stolen election, you're worse than Osama bin Laden. And the fact that his FBI had the absolute gall to do this, to to raid these three people's, these three lawyers' homes and offices, on the morning he's giving his speech about his 100th day in office, or the day before his 100th day in office, to talk about how great of a job I'm doing. That's, you know, I'm here to talk about how I'm saving America and you should all be grateful for me. Rah, rah, rah. It's Normally making Star Wars comparisons is cringe, but it is kind of like executing Order 66 in Revenge of the Sith, where, you know, as the chancellor turned emperor is giving his speech to the Senate, declaring, you know, I am starting a new empire here and now we're completely restructuring the galaxy. As he is giving that speech, his goons are out and about killing off his political opponents. It's the same thing here. And again, without the media, without a fair media, no one is going to be talking about this like they should. That realistically, this is America getting much closer to authoritarianism. I think closer than we've ever been to authoritarianism since at least FDR's presidency. Well, I'm pretty sure the Washington, D.C. swamp considered Watergate to be the greatest attack on our democracy before January 6th. It's it's always – and that was kind of built up. The Watergate story, the Watergate saga was kind of built up in, uh, in D.C. mythology, and that's why you saw so many journalistic references to Watergate during the Russiagate scandal or the so-called scandal uh, because – for for these people, you know, for most of the country, Watergate is something that happened a long, long time ago. It's something that, you know, it's half a century ago. It's distant history. For people in Washington, D.C., though, that was one of the greatest moments in American history because it was when journalism could finally take its revenge on the most hated character that they that journalists probably have ever hated in American history, who was Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah. So it was an opportunity for them because for 
you know, over and over again, Richard Nixon had just pilloried the media. He, he did what Trump was, would do like decades before Trump came along. Right. And then he wins in an overwhelming landslide in 1972 in the biggest rebuke to the American media establishment in American history, even bigger than Donald Trump. You know, Trump didn't win 49 states like nope. Nixon did. And so the fact that they were able to take Nixon down, that was the that was kind of something that they would relive. And people in D.C. have been reliving that wonderful moment for half a century. They've still been you know, reveling in the in how good that felt to finally take Nixon down. And so for them, this was a bigger issue that Nixon's, you know, his little uh, his little uh, wiretapping that he didn't even personally do is like it was his people who worked under him. This was bigger than Pearl Harbor. This was bigger than either the world wars. Because to them, this is political corruption. This is Republicans being sneaky to defeat Democrats, which is worse than foreigners being sneaky to defeat Americans. Because in a sense, they're so partisan that the Democratic Party is their country. So any kind of underhanded tactics to defeat Democrats is an attack on their country, essentially, which is why they see the January 6th storming of the Capitol as an attack on their country. And why the FBI, which is overwhelmingly full, it's just stacked full of Democrats, is looks at the attack on January 6th as an attack on their country, just like they saw the election of Donald Trump as an attack on their country. So this is something Americans have to understand when you're dealing, when you're discussing institutions in America, specifically the FBI, you're not talking about an American institution. You're talking about a partisan institution, a Democratic Party institution that to the extent to whenever you get a Republican president like Trump in, the most he can do is kind of rein in the FBI a little bit from spying on Americans, from harassing Americans, from infringing on American civil liberties. Once you get a Democrat into office, especially a Democrat like Joe Biden, who's been in office his entire life, the FBI then has complete free reign to wage political warfare against Republicans. There's a lot of conservatives that are like, well, we got to get rid of the FBI. We got to get rid of the CIA. You're not going to get rid of the FBI and CIA. Those institutions are here to stay. It's kind of like when leftists say we need to get rid of ICE. Pragmatic leftists don't like ICE, but they understand you're not going to get rid of it. So their solution is let's take it over. Let's get a Democratic administration in and let's do what Biden has did. Biden has essentially defanged ICE. ICE is essentially a useless institution or organization right now because they can't do anything. They're They're doing less deportations and more diaper changing at this point. Exactly. And that's what you need from a Republican president in dealing with the FBI. You need to get the FBI. You need to send those FBI employees home so they can be stay-at-home dads and do more diaper changing rather than sitting in their offices playing Antifa, which is essentially what FBI agents do. There, I mean, that, that's the thing. There really is no difference between the FBI and Antifa. They are one in the same institution to a large extent. And so if you, you're not going to get rid of the FBI, the most that conservatives can hope for is a president who will get in, who will do who will actually take his rhetoric seriously. That's the thing with Trump. That's why I'm highly critical of Trump, because his bark was always bigger than his bite. You need someone who's going to get in whose bite is going to be bigger than their bark, and they're actually going to defang the FBI the same way that the Biden administration is defanging ICE. Yeah, and also Watergate can certainly be pointed to as nothing else. You know, again, if the journalists, if the media had any self awareness, they would know this. Watergate was the death of American journalism. That was the moment that journalism went from being relatively. People look back on like the age of Walter Cronkite as like you know a guy who, when the media just did its job and told the news, they didn't really interject their opinions. Again, in the case of Nixon, that was an exception. But when Watergate happened. Every single journalist from that moment onward, still to this day, has wanted to be the next Woodward and Bernstein. And, you know, Woodward is constantly going on Fox. During the Trump administration, he was, as a lefty, he was going on Fox every other couple of minutes and saying, oh, this is the new Watergate. This is the new Watergate. No, this is, uh, trust me, I know, this is the new Watergate. And every journalist has tried to be like those men, and has. it has not been about 
delivering the news or even, you know, necessarily putting my opinions out there. It has been about I want to be the next reporter who takes down a president. Well, normally whenever we cover stories on the right take, we'll typically cover things that occurred in the previous week since the last episode. But this is a story that actually just broke today. You remember the Atlanta officer who killed Richard Brooks? Uh, Richard Brooks was the black gentleman at a Wendy's who had uh, who was sleeping in his car. This is in uh, this was shortly after the George Floyd riots. He was sleeping in his car and uh, he was uh, awakened by a couple of police officers who had been called because he was just sitting in the drive-through holding up traffic. Well, they pulled him aside and they had a conversation, they carried on a conversation with him for thirty minutes. And then when they attempted to take him into custody, I believe he had an outstanding warrant or two. He grabbed their tasers and ran. And then he turned and tried to shoot one of the officers with the taser. And uh, one of the officers, Garrett Rolf, uh, discharged his firearm and killed him. And uh, sh- shot him in the back as Richard Brooks had turned around and was pointing the taser at him. But Rolf was immediately fired. And he was charged with felony murder. They, of course, rioted. They burned the Wendy's down. They were trying to repeat, trying to basically trying to outdo Minneapolis. Of Try, course, didn't turn it into the next George Floyd. Basically, yeah, it, it didn't work. And the whole course, they released the body cam footage. The Atlanta Police Department did, and the parking lot surveillance camera footage as well. Mm-hmm. So everyone got it, got a chance to see everything that took place. They were extremely respectful to Brooks, but all of a sudden, Brooks just decided to run because he didn't want to go to jail for intoxication. Like I said, I think he had an outstanding warrant. And uh, he just decided to make a run for it and tried to shoot the officers with a taser, and they returned – and uh, Rolf returned fire and killed him. Well, the Atlanta Civil Service Board just today reinstated Garrett Rolf as a police officer. So he's got his uh, he's got his job back. He has been reinstated as a police officer, so he'll be able to return to work if he's acquitted. This is from the Atlantic Journal-Constitution. Due to the city's failure to comply with several provisions of the code and the information received during witnesses' testimony, the, the board concludes the appellant was not afforded his right to due process. Therefore, the board grants the appeal of Garrett Rolf and revokes his dismissal as an employee of the APD. The ruling doesn't mean Rolf will be back on the streets. In fact, he won't actually be allowed to return to work as his bond prevents him from possessing a firearm or being around other officers, said attorney Lance LaRusso, who represented the 28-year-old officer in front of the Civil Service Board. Rolf will receive back pay for his time away from the department and will be compensated at the same rate as he was before his dismissal. So he's not going to lose any money from this. In a statement, the Atlanta Police Department confirmed Rolf will be placed on administrative leave. They said, quote, the Civil Service Board has reversed the termination of Officer Garrett Rolf only on the basis that they were not done in accordance with the Atlanta City Code. It is important to note that the CSB did not make a determination as to whether Officer Rolf violated Atlanta Police Department policies in light of the CSB's rulings that APD will conduct an assessment to determine if additional investigative actions are needed. Rolf said his attorney has received several death threats and has essentially been in hiding since last summer. Though he got his job back, he wonders if he'll tr- ever truly get to be a cop again. LaRusso said, obviously, he would be, it would be dangerous for him to be on the streets. He can't even work a traditional job in a store or something like that out of concern for his safety. Now, get this. <laughs> this, is, this is insane. In a statement, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms defended her decision to immediately fire Rolf. So the reason why they're reinstating him is because whenever you fire a cop, according to their their rules in Atlanta, you have to give the cop the opportunity to respond and at least give a statement defending himself. You can't just immediately fire him without giving him a chance. It's just their due process. You know, according to, and during the collective bargaining, this is something that they agreed that whenever a cop gets fired, you have to give him a chance to respond. But according to Bottoms, she said, quote, given the volatile state of our city and nation last summer, the the decision to terminate this officer after he fatally shot Mr. Brooks in the back was the right thing to do. Had immediate action not been taken, I firmly believe that the public safety crisis we experienced during that time would have been significantly worse. 
So essentially she's saying we had to fire him because if we hadn't fired him, the riots would have been worse. It's basically just like the jurors from the George Floyd or from the Derek Chauvin trial who literally admitted, yeah, we convicted him because we didn't want more riots. Like it's just it's- exactly. But the thing is, like, she's not even she's not even being subtle about it. She's essentially saying, yes, I had to fire him because the public safety crisis would have gotten worse if we hadn't fired him. So if you're a police officer in Atlanta, you can and there you happen to have to kill someone in self-defense. You can expect to be immediately terminated because especially if the person happens to be black, you can expect to be immediately terminated without due process. Without any chance to, you know, those collective that collective bargaining agreement, you can forget about that. That doesn't apply in these situations. If the victim happens to be black, you're going to be immediately terminated because Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms doesn't want to have to deal with rioters. Like I said, the judicial system in this country is officially dead. Well, it's like, and recently, I don't know if you saw the one of the jurors in the in the Chauvin case. He recently uh, pictures emerged of him. Oh yeah, in a Black Lives Matter shirt. In L- a Black L- Lives L- L- picture of Martin Luther King, literally saying, "Get your knee off our neck." And they interviewed him about. It. He was interviewed about it and asked about. It. And he said, "Oh well, that didn't have anything to do with Chauvin. That was just I just wanted to go to the. It was a. It was a, This was the D.C. thing that Al Sharpton put on last August. I, I, I remember that <laughs> very well. Oh yeah. But uh, but he his his excuse was, well, I just wanted to go be around a bunch of black people. I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, be a, I want to be around. Thousands of other black people like me, and I'd never been to D.C. before either. Oh, so he was a tourist, basically. That was his and he, he was asked if he had ever taken part in the questionnaire. If he was, he was asked if he had ever taken part in any Black Lives Matter demonstrations or any anti-police demonstrations. He, said, he said no. no. So the get your knee off my neck that had nothing to do with Chauvin and George Floyd. It was just a random shirt. He just saw, hey, that, that looks pretty neat. Get your knee off my neck. I like the like the graphics on that. I'm going to put that on. It has nothing to do with Chauvin. Yeah, so it's ridiculous. You can't if you're a police officer, if you're a white police officer, you cannot expect any kind of justice in the current climate that we're in if you happen to injure or kill a black person in self-defense. I don't I mean, unless you're in a rural area where there are no black people, it's really not safe to be a police officer if you're white. And we I mean, when a mayor of a major city says that she had to fire someone to avoid public unrest, so she's denying this individual due process. So it, here's the thing. A lot, a lot of people, they feel that Chauvin should have been convicted on all charges, even if he was innocent. And this is what Greg Gutfeld of Fox News said on air. He said after Chauvin's conviction, he said, even if he might not be guilty on all charges, this is a direct quote, even if he might not be guilty on all charges, I am glad that he is guilty of all charges because I want a verdict that keeps this country from going up in flames. Ah, Greg <laughs> Gutfeld, why, this man? Is, this is insanity. He, one of the, I thought he was one of the few good people left at Fox. And he turns around and says this. I'm like, are you, are you serious, dude? Like, so this, is, this is supposed to be a country. This is supposed to be a nation where – a nation of laws where if someone is accused and the mob demands they be lynched, that they should be convicted even if they're innocent. What happened to, to innocent before proving guilty? I mean, what happened to, you know, trial by jury of a, of a jury of your peers? I don't think that Black Lives Matter activists who sat on the jury that convicted Chauvin was exactly one of Chauvin's peers. I mean, no, of course it, not. Yeah, that's and what you, you have a National Guard for. You get the National Guard in the streets and there won't be any rioting. Because one thing that we try to do on the right take, uh, take besides just offer criticism of the country and the way the current the absolute state of America right now is we, we want to try to try to also provide solutions. We want to try to look at ways that it didn't, you know, because it didn't have to be this way. American history did not have to devolve into where we are right now. We could be a very safe, free, happy, united country if certain groups of people had encouraged their kids to go into certain areas of employment, such as journalism. Remember last week how I mentioned 
the crisis of conservative journalism, how the, the fact the fact of the matter is most conservatives who have a high IQ just don't go into journalism because it offers a very low financial reward. They'd rather go into like accounting or, you know, the financially lucrative occupations, basically. Right. Well, so uh, as I was researching the the uh, the Rolf story, the Richard Brooks, Garrett Rolf story, uh, I read the BuzzFeed. I read BuzzFeed's article on it. And so I just out of curiosity, I thought, you know what, I'm going to look up this journalist, Amber Jameson, just to find out what else she's written about. It turns out her fit, her very first big girl job as a journalist was for none other than the New York Post, the conservative New York Post, who which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. They may say, what's the big deal? You know, there's lots of journalists who work for – may work for The Post, work for BuzzFeed, work for Huffington Post, move around to conservative and liberal journalist sites. They're just neutral reporters. But the interesting thing about this chick is – so she's Australian. In Australia, before moving to the U.S. to get her graduate degree from Columbia University – she wrote about feminist politics in Australia, and that was her big – you find this on her LinkedIn account. After moving to the United States and enrolling in Columbia University, which is the premier journalistic school in America, she uh, made her marks by creating a, an interactive map of high schools in America with transgender bathrooms and writing a long-form article on women who must travel to New York to get abortions because other parts of the country have restricted abortion access. And immediately after – you know, writing this long form article and after creating an interactive map of high schools with transgender bathrooms, she gets her first big girl job writing for the New York Post. Now, I don't expect conservative outlets to only hire conservative writers, but, you know, you would think if they're going to hire someone who isn't necessarily politically inclined or that they would hire someone who is just a straight up news reporter, like is kind of neutral, who doesn't make their marks by creating interactive maps of transgender bathrooms in high schools and writing pro-choice articles, long-form articles about women who have to travel, who have to go through the the struggle of traveling to New York just so they can get an abortion. In other words, have some standards basically, guys, but, like yeah, vet but, these people. But this is the this is where we're at because there is no uh, you know, they don't really have a large pool of conservative people to draw from in journalism. No. But the least they could do is make a little bit better of an effort than to hire people like this. But this is, you know, so what can you expect whenever there's only a handful of conservative outlets and that handful of conservative outlets isn't even prioritizing conservative journalists? They're just going for somebody who has a degree from Columbia, who, you know, has a good resume builder, having written about feminism and transgenderism. It's either that or they'll go out of their way to hire uh, young, attractive women to put on Fox News so that, you know, viewers of Fox News will look at these beautiful young women and, you know, they, they won't really listen to what they'll say, but they'll see, oh, this outlet has a, a hot, you know, 20-something-year-old girl. I should probably you know, check her workout, you know? It's- yeah, that is what, that's what's infuriating about Fox News. If you turn on CNN, MSNBC, any normal left-wing mainstream news outlet, they don't have Barbie dolls up there presenting the news. They have regular, normal, professional-looking women who are presenting the news. So for the main topic, we are going to respond to Biden's speech. So this... This speech, oh my goodness. I mean, you watch just the visuals of the speech alone. First off, they following COVID restrictions, as always. Um, the chamber was not full. They were all spaced out very nicely between each other, and they all had masks on. There were only about maybe 200 people in attendance. It wasn't all of Congress. It wasn't all of the cabinet. Uh, I remember even not all of the Supreme Court. They they intro, they do the introduction of the justices of the Supreme Court, and it was only John Roberts walking in. <laughs> just only John Roberts, a.k.a. the friendliest justice to Biden's agenda. Um, and it, the speech itself only lasted about an hour, I think. It was over, and I was just like, wait, it's over already? My goodness. I mean, but then I remembered, oh, yeah, Biden has to get to his bedtime. 
Um, he mostly <laughs> talked about he, of course. He was very quick to talk about, you know, how much he saved America. You know, it was very much a me, me, me. I took all these actions to save America from COVID. I, I'm saving America. I passed this $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, which, again, is, is less than half of what Trump passed with his two bills. But I digress once again. And he also talked about a few other things he did. Again, as we said before, he referred to the January 6th peaceful protests at the Capitol as the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. He talked about amnesty. He demanded that Congress pass his amnesty bill, although he didn't talk about the border crisis itself. That was the one big glaring elephant that he left out of his speech. But it, he basically talked about his massive spending plan, his plan to spend anywhere from four to six trillion dollars between uh, infrastructure. Uh, he also encouraged them to pass H.R. 1, the bill that would federalize U.S. elections and basically codify vote by mail and the other fraudulent practices that led to the 2020 election being stolen. And. What I think I, – a lot of people were not interested in this. Like I hear – I was seeing that the ratings for the speech were actually historically low. Like it was significantly lower than any of Trump's speeches, including his first uh, address to a joint session of Congress. People just didn't really care to tune in. I think we here at the right take, and certainly uh, quite a few people on the right, were just as interested at, in uh, Biden's speech as we were in the GOP response. So the opposition party always gets to give an official response to the incumbent president's State of the Union. They usually pick they pick they pick someone that they see as a rising star, you know, a representative of their party. Doesn't have to be a member of Congress, but it usually is. So the GOP picked Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, the junior senator from South Carolina serving with Lindsey Graham, who is African American. And it's this much needs to be said. Let's just get this elephant out of the way right now, this elephant in the room. It is painfully obvious why they picked tim scott they're not even trying to hide it it is just it's just like when they picked marco rubio to give his ill-fated state of the union response in 2013 remember when he infamously sipped the bottle of water that ended his career (laughs) and he gave his response to obama and this was at the height of the daca debate 2013 2014 so of course they said oh yeah let's pick a hispanic guy with a hispanic sounding last name let's have him speak a bit of spanish and he did speak a bit of spanish in his (laughs) response it was obvious pandering they might as well have just come right out and say it and now, you know, here we are um, eight years later, the big racial movement, race-centered movement in America is not DACA anymore. It's not Hispanics. It's Black Lives Matter. So it just – it was obvious to them. Sure, okay, yeah, let's pick – because there's only three black Republicans in all of Congress. I, I believe only three. Tim Scott and then two in the House. The, those two in the House who were elected – both elected just last year, Burgess Owens from Utah and Byron Donalds from Florida. Well, I personally like both of them more. I think either one of them would have been a, a better at this. If you're going to narrow it down to one of those three, I would have liked either of them better. But you know what they really should have done, what would have been hysterical is if they – this would be the ultimate move to stay in touch with the base and give the ultimate middle finger to the Dems is if they had just picked Trump to give the response. That would have been absolutely legendary. But, of course, they don't care about their voters. They don't care about the Trump base. They never have. So we're actually going to review Tim Scott's response first because his response was more overarching. Like, I tried to cover as many ground, as much ground as possible. And then we're going to focus on the real meat of Biden's speech, which is his massive 4 to $6 trillion spending proposals. So right out the gate, this speech from Tim Scott is an absolute disaster. Good evening. I'm Senator Tim Scott from the great state of South Carolina. We just heard President Biden's first address to Congress. Our president seems like a good man. His speech was full of good words. Eh, wrong. <laughs> wrong. Oh, you're already losing. You just, this is literally, this is another thing I will quote Ben Shapiro on. That I don't, ben Shapiro doesn't get it right a lot, but when he does, you got to give him credit. 
he he said this about John McCain back in 2008 when John McCain was the nominee and he waddled out on the stage <laughs> for at the Republican convention in front of a green screen, a literal green screen, and declared in his speech accepting the nomination that then-Senator Barack Obama would make a great president of the United States. Well, the moment you do that, you, you've lost. You have, you're already conceding, oh, yeah, our president, this president is a good man. Yeah, a good man who says the Capitol protest was the worst thing to happen since the Civil War. You know, a good man who basically declared— A lot of good words. Good words. Good words. You know, he has good words. He, he reads a dictionary. You know, he, dictionary is his bedtime reading. But if, you know, one side is declaring— Oh, you, the other party is a bunch of racists and sexists and homophobes, and they hate America, and they're fascists and radical, far-right, white supremacists, neo-Nazi, Holocaust-denying, anti-Semites, every buzzword in the book. And you respond with, oh, I think he seems like a good man. Like, it's just you've already lost completely. Well, this so. this goes back to Republicans continuing to believe that uh, most Americans want to vote for the party or will support the party that takes the high road. The problem is most Americans aren't even tuning in. No. The only people who are tuning in are people who don't want to take the high road. <laughs> so it doesn't work that way. I mean, when the, most of the most of the country is just tuned out of politics, you're not going to gain any brownie points by taking the high road. Another issue should, that should unite us is infrastructure. Republicans support everything you think of when you think of infrastructure: roads, bridges, ports, airports, waterways, high-speed broadband. We're in for all of that. Okay. Question. Question. All right, Senator Scott, if you if Republicans were really all for that, then uh, why didn't you do that when Trump was president? This is something that's been completely forgotten, tragically. So when Trump ran for office and when he got elected, one of the key one of the more obscure policy positions and proposals he had besides building the wall, renegotiating trade deals, getting out of foreign wars. He specifically said he wanted to work on a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. He kind of compared – it was kind of his equivalent of Obama's $1 trillion stimulus bill that he passed early in his presidency to address the financial crisis. Trump wanted to do a $1 trillion infrastructure bill to focus on roads and bridges and highways and tunnels and airports like Scott said. And I remember uh, Steve Bannon said in his interview on 60 Minutes with Charlie Rose, he said that shortly after the inauguration, Bannon and several uh, other White House advisors met with – Republican leader, congressional leaders, Paul Ryan and others. And Ryan said, oh, yeah, we'll get you infrastructure. You know, just give us control. Let us take control of the legislative calendar for the year 2017. We'll get you Obamacare repeal in the spring, tax cuts in the summer, and an infrastructure bill in the fall, all passed and on the president's desk for his signature by the end of his first year in office. And Bannon, putting faith in Paul Ryan, which is never a good thing to do, he said, okay, sure, go for it. And then, of course, we all know how that went. But the truth is, and infrastructure, even after 2017, as we went into 2018, before the midterms, they focused a bit more on uh, immigration. You know, the original, the government shut down over the wall funding and whatnot, and infrastructure was never taken up. Trump wanted to do this. Trump said for the longest time, I want to fix our infrastructure. This was something he even talked about possibly working with Democrats on after the midterms and kind of like he did with criminal justice reform or even working into a second term because this is something that could bring Democrats and Republicans together. But Republicans said no. Paul Ryan and all those Republicans never once brought it up for a vote because, oh, fiscal conservatism, government spending is bad. They pushed back on Trump, even though Trump was ahead of the curve on this. And said, hey, we should focus on infrastructure spending because this is something that we need. This is a real America first policy. He framed it as why spend trillions on foreign wars in the Middle East when you can spend a trillion fixing our broken infrastructure. And the Republicans want nothing to do with it because we'd rather cut taxes and government spending. We don't want more government spending. So good job, guys. Now here we are four years later and you're playing catch up again 
with the Democrats, with Joe Biden. Now Joe Biden has seized the lead on this issue and is running away with the narrative, even though, as he points out elsewhere in this response and Republicans have pointed out correctly, their infrastructure bill that Biden is proposing has very little to do with actual roads and tunnels and all that. It focuses more on on like social programs like family plans and stuff like that. And they're masking it as infrastructure. But nevertheless, they're calling it an infrastructure bill. The media is going to call it an infrastructure bill. And like the Afghanistan withdrawal that we talked about in a previous episode, Biden is going to run away with this and get all the credit for it because you Republicans did nothing with your majority in those first two years of the Trump presidency. And you should have listened to Trump, but you couldn't you couldn't put aside your principles of, you know, fiscal conservatism. That's all we care about. And now the Democrats are running away with another issue that should have been Trump's. Congratulations. Yeah, that's the thing. Americans are not fiscally conservative. <laughs> this is this is the thing that Republicans. You don't said understand. this off the air. Fiscal conservatism is dead in America. Yeah, re- Republicans are so far out of step with the with most Americans on this sentiment. I mean, I am to the right of most Americans on fiscal issues. I'm sure you are as well. But the reality is, most Amer- the Republicans, most elected Republicans, are so far to the right of us on this issue that they're completely out of lockstep with the American people. That's why. That's, that's why they lose elections. Well, Republicans if, – if Republicans ran on the issues that Americans care about, that their own party's base cares about, you'd have 60 Repu- – you'd, you'd have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate right An now. An infrastructure bill, fighting the opioid crisis, all of which involves government spending and all of which are issues Trump talked about but they didn't want to listen to because Trump was they, – they accepted him once he won because, oh, he got us a Republican. He gave us a Republican in the White House. But they never accepted him because he wasn't Ronald Reagan 2.0 who just wanted to do tax cuts. And then, of course, we get to uh, the – I think the most problematic part. This was both the biggest hit and biggest miss of Scott's speech. And again, the reason why they picked him. It's just obvious. So he talks about he, – he, this is symbolic of why the right is losing. Nowhere do we need common ground more desperately than in our discussions of race. I have experienced the pain of discrimination. I know what it feels like to be pulled over for no reason, to be followed around the store while I'm shopping. I remember every morning at the kitchen table, my grandfather would open the newspaper and read it, I thought. But later I realized he had never learned to read it. He just wanted to set the right example. I've also experienced a different kind of intolerance. I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually privilege because a relative owned land generations before my time. So this ties back to something that you actually – another thing you said off the air the other day, Jacob. This is why Republicans keep losing. They are – he starts off talking about, oh, I have been discriminated. I've been pulled over, implying that he's pulled over for being black. This is Republicans. This is the right accepting the left's framework with regards to race in America, systemic racism or what we would call microaggressions. And they're running away with it and saying, oh, yeah, that absolutely does happen. Oh, but – it's happening because of the left. The Democrats are the real racist. Democrats are the ones who don't like African-Americans. So the the insinuation here is that police officers have pulled him over because he was black. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. I, do I believe that? If police officers spent their time pulling people over because they're black, there's 45 million black people in this country. That's all they'd be doing. They wouldn't be doing anything else but pulling black people over all the time. So I have a really hard time believing that. And he was followed around the store. How does he know that he was followed around the store because he was black? 
my dad has been followed around Walmart before for no reason. I've had, they, I've had employees follow me around the store. These days, not wearing a mask on the Metro like I do will get you followed around. But, like, I mean, there's so many reasons people, creepy people or homeless people may follow you around. Right. And, but but ten, like 10, 15 years ago, this was actually a thing with Walmart and a lot of big box stores. They were trying to cut down on shoplifting. I remember they were the, they were instructing their employees if they saw – apparently they were instructed. I don't know this for a fact, but apparently they were instructing their employees. This is like two thousand early 2000s, mid-2000s to follow people around who were idly looking at items. So if you went into a store at this during this time period, and I would be willing to bet that whatever this happened to Senator Scott, it was probably during this time period, the, the 2000s. If you were just like by yourself in an aisle just looking and you weren't grabbing something off the, off the shelf, employees would literally follow you around and keep an eye on you. And you would look at them. They'd all of a sudden look down, act like they were doing something or they'd go and they'd go mess around, like literally get all up in your space and mess around with stuff on the shelves, act like they were working and glance at you out of the corner of their eye. Or they'd come. Can I help you with something? That was another thing. <laughs> like, and I think a lot of them do that today. Still, if you're just browsing, they'll come up to you right up in your face as soon as you stop. Can I help you with something? Like, no, no, you can't help me. Leave me alone. Like, let me shop on my own. This was the thing. In fact, I've had other people, white people, complain to me about this happening to them in stores. But this is the problem with tunnel vision among a lot of Black Americans. They think that any of these so-called microaggressions that happen to them don't happen to white people. Like they think that it, just because a police officer is rude to them that it was because they were black. I've had lots of police officers who were incredibly rude to me. So this is something that Republicans, they see that Democrats are running away with this. So they're like, oh, we've got to bring out all of our – we've got to bring out our one black senator to make it sound like he has also experienced microaggressions and he understands the pain that black Americans go through. And then he even goes there on police brutality, quote unquote. In 2015 – after the shooting of Walter Scott, I wrote a bill to fund body cameras. Last year, after the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, I built an even bigger police reform proposal. But my Democratic colleagues blocked it. I extended an olive branch. I offered amendments. But Democrats used a filibuster to block the debate from even happening. So he even basically accepts, oh, yeah, you know, we should uh, we should treat what happened to Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, even despite the overwhelming evidence that in both those situations, the officers either acted reasonably within their training within the law or their actions were grossly misportrayed by the media, by by eyewitness and bystander testimony. Completely conceding the narrative. Exactly. 100 percent conceding the narrative. And I don't blame Democrats for filibustering his bill because if the narrative that the Democrats are pushing is true – why should they settle for crumbs from Tim Scott? I'm sure they're willing to go much further. In fact, they are willing to go much, much further than Senator Scott is willing to go. So why not filibuster his weak bill and put forward something that's actually got some teeth to it? Exactly. That's the you know, the California conundrum is that the California Republican Party these days is just basically Democrat light, basically saying, hey, we're, we're, we're on the left, too. We're just not as left wing as those guys. And Democratic voters will just look at them and blink once, then blink twice and then say, so why don't we just vote for the real thing? Why vote for an knockoff a dollar store knockoff of the democratic party like you guys and then there's this one part here this was this is the one really good part this is the last thing we're going to talk about with the speech before we get to biden this is where he does really good makes a really good point and then he botches it a hundred years ago kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic and if they looked a certain way they were inferior. Today, kids are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, 
they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all. And that's really good. That That's good. I like to hear that. He he talks about how this. he's obviously addressing critical race theory. He's comparing it to, you know, the racism of 100 years ago. He's basically saying he's basically equating this anti-white curriculum with, oh, if you're white, you're automatically racist and you're oppressor with, you know, the teachings back in the day that, you know, black people are inferior, that they're that's similar racism. That's really good. He says this is happening in our colleges, corporations, in our culture. Okay, yep, it's widespread. You're acknowledging it's part of our economy. It's part of our education. Good, good, good. I like it. I like it. And then... By doubling down on the divisions, we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. And he completely drops the ball. This, uh, oh my well, God. Like, he thing, was doing so good. Sorry, go he ahead. He was doing good. Yeah, that, that's a good point with, you know, to highlight the progress we made in, in race, race relations, at least the progress we made before Black Lives Matter and Twitter uh, came on the scene. But 100 years ago, Black kids weren't taught in school that they were inferior because of the color of their skin. Their parents would have never stood for that. This is, I mean, he's he's suggesting that this is what black kids were taught in school. Uh, black parents wouldn't have stood for that a hundred years ago. Uh, that, that didn't that wasn't in curriculum taught to black children. But you wouldn't know that from what you're taught in school. And again, that's just conceding the historical narrative to the left and the, the way that Americans have been indoctrinated in schools. And again, the the thing that Shapiro says, you know, if you are ever on defense ever, you are losing. So then for him to immediately go back to this is the statement. And this is the statement a lot of people latched onto to say, oh, he's so great. We love this response. He's fantastic to say America is not a racist country. But the thing is, you're you're responding to the left's assertion that it is a racist country. You're on defense again. And you're responding to the the fringe left's uh, position that America is a racist country. This is a position that even Biden doesn't believe in. And when he kind of did, but he backtracked a little bit. But when Kamala Harris was asked about it, because Biden had said, uh, said that he doesn't believe that America is a racist country, that people in America aren't racist, and she had to also, of course, agree with him because she's his, uh, his vice uh, president. But they asked Biden about it on uh, NBC's Today Show after Scott's address, and he said, no, I don't think the American people are racist, but this is key. He said, but I think that after 400 years, African Americans have been left in a position where they are far behind in terms of education, health, and opportunity. And this is something that Republicans can't understand because Republicans are constantly chasing. Republicans aren't setting the narrative. They're, they're always reacting. chasing the narrative. Yeah, they're reacting. They're and, not being proactive. Right, right. So, And I remember this is whenever uh, – shortly after the George Floyd riots, whenever Rush Limbaugh went on The Breakfast Club and talked to Charlemagne the God. Um, he was talk- – Charlemagne the God was trying to get him to – at least admit common, find common ground by admitting that America is systemically racist, and Limbaugh didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And Mark Stein, who filled in for Limbaugh, the program after that, he brought this interview up, and he mentioned that Charlemagne the God was speaking a different language from Rush Limbaugh because Rush Limbaugh comes from a generation that doesn't understand what systemic racism means. In fact, I remember I was talking to someone who's older than I am, who's very conservative, and they, uh, he asked me, what does systemic mean? He didn't even know what the word systemic meant. And I explained it to him. I explained what, what they believe about it. And his response was, oh, so they're, they're just – the left is just making up words. And it's like, no, yeah, it's a no, 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 no. You don't understand. <laughs> like they're not making this up. This is actual word that's in the dictionary. Like it, it, it's real. It exists. But the, the terminology and the idea of it is a made-up concept. Like it's not real. It, it's not a – systemic racism isn't real. No, it's not real. But I'm saying that he didn't even understand what the word – he thought that they were making up the word systemic. Oh, which like is, making up the word micro. Aggression. Like right. He thought, he thought it was that, a made up word. Right. Uh, it's not a made up word. It's an actual word that exists, but they just 
change the definition of it. But because people who run the right, people who are older, who are boomers, don't understand, haven't kept up with the trends on universities over the past 30 years, they don't know what any of this terminology means. So when the left declares that America is systemically racist, because people who run the conservative Inc. and the Republican Party don't know what that means, they think they don't hear systemic. They just hear racist. So they hear, oh, they're claiming America is racist. So then they put Tim Scott on TV to say America is not racist. But that doesn't actually push back against anything because then they ask Joe Biden about it. And Joe Biden says, no, I don't believe Americans are racist. So, bam, your whole – and well, even Jim Clyburn it, said it, it he worked, doesn't believe America is racist. It worked a little bit in the sense that obviously if you take that, it, that could be a clever way of you know kind of twisting their words around into saying something that's – to claiming they said something similar along similar principles. And it, it would make sense. This would be a great way of using their tactic against them to say they say America is systemically racist. We hit them with – Oh, so you think America's racist. You think the American people are a bunch of racist because then Biden, as you said, Biden and even Kamala had to come out and disavow that and say, no, we don't think that that is them being put on defense, which is good. We should have them on defense. It's kind of like, you know, what neocons did during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq when they were first getting started under the Bush presidency. And they would say to people, to non-interventionists like the Pat Buchanan, they would say, oh, if you're if you're against the war on terror, you must be. Uh, you must hate the troops. You must hate the military. And if naturally, the non-interventionists would say, "Wait, no, I don't hate the military. Get your enemies on defense." And that is inadvertently. I guess you could certainly argue this is unintentionally. It's not like this was Tim Scott's master plan, but it is. It did put the top two figureheads on the left on defense in these public settings in these interviews, which is good. That is progress. But unfortunately, the GOP is not pouncing on that. No, no, no. I disagree completely. I don't think this put them on de- defense at all. That's they were like, forced to disavow it. They, which, of course, they disavowed it. They never. They never claimed it. They never claimed America was but, racist. But they're still acting as if they've been accused of saying that. No, because they're asked about it. They asked Biden about it. Do you think – just asked him to respond, and he said, no, I don't think America is racist. He didn't have to – It's not. he's not being on defense. He's just responding honestly about what he feels about that statement. It's just like whenever Republicans thought they were going to put Biden on defense because he allegedly signed this agreement with Bernie Sanders on health care and stuff. But, but Biden's position was never single payer for all Americans. So that wasn't putting him on defense because that was never his position. It was never Biden's position that America is racist. I disagree. I mean, it, you're still is presenting this to the viewing population to however many, whatever size the audience was watching Tim Scott's speech, that you are putting this idea out there that Biden said this stuff. It's, it is good because, again, the left misrepresents what the right does all the time. So it is good for us to do the same thing and misrepresent what they say and make it sound more dangerous and more radical because it's clear a vast majority of Americans do not support this idea that America is a racist country, whether systemic or whatever. At that point, you're just playing semantics with the word. No, no, no. This isn't semantics for the people who support Joe Biden because the people who support Joe Biden, at least people under 50, they know exactly the definition of systemic racism because they've learned about it in college. It went by allegedly by, – because all they've got to do – this is another thing. It works for them to misrepresent us. And this is something I heard on the Mike Gallagher show. This older lady from New Jersey called in, and she was saying, we, we're going to lose in 2022 if we don't start name-calling. Name-calling works. She said, we ought to call the Democrats racist. We need to call them anti-Semitic because that's what they do to us, and it works. So we need to call them names. I actually did hear that caller. You're right. I remember and, that. And I was thinking to myself, so you're misunderstanding. It does, the reason it doesn't work when our side does it is because they control 90 percent of the media. We can call them racist all day, and all we're doing is screaming into the ether into the ether because it's not covered. It's not picked up on the media because in this situation. OK, so we say America is not racist. Well, OK, the very next day they asked Joe Biden on NBC Today to respond. He says, no, I don't think America Americans are racist. So, boom, that goes out on all the media. All the media covers it. 
Whereas if the if the roles were reversed, the media, the mainstream media would not rec- would not cover President Trump's response to an accusation. This is the this is why this the misrepresentation does not work. It works for them. It doesn't work for us. Name calling doesn't work. It works for them. It doesn't work for us because we're at a disadvantage media wise. This is something that Republicans have to and the right has to take into consideration when they're crafting their strategy. You have to understand they have cannons. We have muskets. You have to think of how to defeat an enemy with cannons when you only have muskets. Whoever wrote that speech for Scott should have had him say America is not a systemically racist country. That would have put Biden on defense. Then Biden would have had to have said, yes, America is systemically racist or America is not systemically racist. Um, Mike Pence did this very, very well in the vice presidential debate. And one of the reasons why he wept, he wiped the floor with Kamala Harris. I don't know if you remember the point at which he tried to put her on defense and he re- and she didn't take the bait. But you could tell from her grimace that she was very, very perturbed by his tactic. But he said Kamala Harris, he said, Senator Harris claims that America is systemically racist. And the grimace on her face showed that she couldn't go there because if she, she said, does believe that she does she, believe that. But the fact that he was using the wording, he didn't say she believes America is racist because she could have just said, no, I don't believe that. But because he said systemically racist, she couldn't defend herself. She just grimaced. She gritted her teeth and she moved on to the next topic because he had her over a barrel. There was nothing she could do. There was nothing she could say that would make her or her side look well, look good. And unfortunately, the Republicans missed the opportunity right here with Scott's um, Scott's declaration that America is not a racist country because Biden doesn't think America is racist. He thinks America is systemically racist. And he defines that by his the second half of his sentence when he said, but I think that uh, that after 400 years, African-Americans have been left in a position where they are far behind in terms of education, health and opportunity. And as we're going to point out in a line by line discussion of his four trillion dollar plan, this is what Biden is hoping to address and this solution to this 400 year, you know, 400 years of discrimination that he claims African Americans have faced, is extremely racist against white Americans and heavily discriminates against white Americans using white Americans' tax dollars. Completely. And one last story I had to tell you. you mentioned Rush Limbaugh. This is a great story that a friend of mine told me that I, I couldn't actually find the transcript of this, but I absolutely believe this story. That Rush Limbaugh sometime last year had a, a woman, an older woman, call into his show. To talk about Tim Scott, because at the time, Tim Scott was uh, proposing another criminal justice bill because, you know, President Trump signed one, the First Step Act a couple years ago, and Scott was proposing another one. And the caller called in and was just singing Tim Scott's praises like, oh, he's so great. He's wonderful. He's eloquent. He's got this great criminal justice reform bill. I think he should be our nominee in 2024. This was assuming, of course, that Trump would legitimately win in 2020, which he did, but then it was assuming voter fraud wouldn't happen. So they were assuming Trump would serve a whole second term. And then 2024 will be wide open. So she's saying we should have Tim Scott in 2024. And Rush just kind of listened to her. And then event, when she was done, he then said, OK, cool. Tell me your favorite aspect of Tim Scott's bill. What do you like most about his bill? And she didn't have an answer. She literally could not name a specific policy or anything. She just it was clear she was only supporting Tim Scott because she was being told to like Tim Scott. Yeah. So that's that just shows the fact that Fox News had as the monopoly on conservative opinion. They, they can promote whoever. I mean, Fox it, News can literally tilt the narrative in favor of one senator against another senator. If Fox News doesn't want, doesn't like you, they can just not have you on, on their shows and conservative voters don't know anything about you. Exactly. It was the same with Marco Rubio back when Marco Rubio in the immediate aftermath of 2012 was seen as one of the rising stars because he – why? Because um, Espanol, you know, because that was all that mattered at the time. It is Cubano. <laughs> oh, boy. So uh, Joe Biden's speech – again, there was a lot to dissect in his speech, but by far the most substantial – is his massive, massive spending plan. 
So, Jacob, want to break down for us what exactly this uh, massive $4 trillion plan would entail? Uh, I think it is important that we that we discuss some of the issues because – what, you know, we, we we do criticize President Biden a lot, but we don't want to nit. We don't want to come across as nitpicking. We do want to make our criticism substantial and sub, uh, substantially right wing, and not just the you know Biden bad because he Democrat that type of. Uh, if you want that, there's plenty of talk show hosts and podcasts you can find that uh, that are from Conservative Inc. that can provide you with that analysis. But so anyway, this American Jobs Plan, it's a $4 trillion plan. This is – he's basically just wanting to, to ramp up spending, just endless government federal spending. And it just shows the, that Democrats still have not given up on their, their Keynesian roots. The, the Democratic Party really is still stuck in the, in the, in the myth of the, the recovery from the Great Depression. They're still stuck in the myth that Keynesian spending under FDR is what caused us to pull out of the Great Depression. So this plan, its goals are specifically – and we're just pulling this from the whitehouse.gov website. We're not relying on any outside commentary. We're not relying on any other analysis, just what he presented on his website. The American Jobs Plan's specific goals are threefold, to create jobs for Americans, rebuild American infrastructure, and outcompete China. Biden wants this to be similar to the interstate system that under President Eisenhower and the space race under President Kennedy – which very obviously he expects to cement his position in American history alongside Eisenhower and alongside Kennedy. He identifies the two greatest challenges of our time as the climate crisis and a rising China. He wants to differentiate this particular spending plan from past federal achievements, such as the Interstate Highway Act and the space race, by prioritizing longstanding and persistent racial injustice. So one of the criticisms you hear from black identitarians of the interstate system is that it segregated American neighborhoods, that these interstates, whenever they were built, they were specifically laid out to divide white neighborhoods from black neighborhoods. This is, of course, very cherry-picked. Oftentimes, that's just the way that it made sense. Other times, it didn't do that. And one example is right here in D.C. Whenever they created Interstate 295, at the time, the Anacostia neighborhood was about 80 percent white, this the in the interstate to interstate 295 which runs on along the east side of the Anacostia River it divided the white neighborhood into it split up the in fact it separated the white neighborhood from the river so it made it more difficult for white middle white working class families to go enjoy a nice sunday afternoon picnic along the Anacostia River because they had an interstate running running down the middle of their neighborhood so this is you know this is this is cherry picked of course and of course anything that we did in the past black identitarians and black intellectuals have to the that is, the majority of black intellectuals have to portray as being racist because everything in the past was racist. You can't redefine a nation. You can't revolutionize a nation if you don't completely throw out the entirety of its past. So this is a bone that he's throwing to the black identitarians by pointing out that the plan – this is going to differ from like FDR's New Deal. It's going to differ from Eisenhower's interstate highway system and Kennedy's space race in that it's going to address systemic inequities and racial injustice. All right, so we'll break this down. Transportation. He wants to spend $621 billion on transportation. A part of this transportation plan, he wants to repair roads and bridges, $115 billion, modernize public transit, $85 billion. And uh, part of the modernizing public transit, uh, he, went, uh, he writes, households that take public transportation to work have twice the commute time and households of color are twice as likely to take public transportation. Of course, all throughout this thing, it's very clear who his constituents are. And this is something that Democrats are very good at. 
when people vote Democrat, they are rewarded financially. When people vote Republican, Republicans tend to reward Democrats financially. <laughs> this is something Democrats the, or their the, donors, their or, or, or their donors. donors, their donors and the the people that their donors want them to pander to. So Democrats, when they get elected, they will then go to their constituents and they will brag about everything they've done for their constituents. They'll brag about how they've lowered unemployment for their constituents. Republicans get elected and they go to their constituents and they brag to their constituents about how they've lowered the unemployment rate for Democrats. But uh, this is something that that Biden is very careful to do all throughout this all throughout this this document. He over and over again, you see racial injustice, equity, not equality, equity, the the new buzzword for black identitarians talks about people of color all throughout the thing. And the, again, you know, this term people of color, it just recently came into common American speech and it was brought it was brought into American speech from the universities who specifically want to unite all non-white Americans against white Americans. They want to divide the country. They're not interested in a united America. They want a divided America because they see this is a zero-sum game. They see by making white Americans a minority, they can gain more power for themselves. They can push their policy priorities. So people of color, it unites anyone of non-European descent. Freight and passenger rail, he wants to spend $80 billion on it. He wants to electrify – he wants to spend $174 billion to electri- electrify vehicles, and this is part of his plan to eventually move to – move completely – move away from fossil fuels, completely eliminate fossil fuels. I think by the year 2035 is his goal. He points out the U.S. market share of plug-in electric vehicle sales is only one-third the size of the Chinese electric vehicle market. And again, this is – everything that he does, he wants to try to compete with the Chinese. And just because the Chinese have more electric vehicles, it must mean that they are more innovative than we are, which – I mean that doesn't just just because a country has more rail transportation doesn't mean that they're ahead of us in in our yeah, innovation that, or our you know job growth. That was literally California's logic for trying to create their own high speed rail system because oh Japan's got a high speed rail system and their economy's doing all right. Yeah, but that just because you have a high speed rail, I'm pretty sure the nation of Japan is smaller than the state of California. It's it's not going to work. They, right, and you can't just point to another another country and say because they do more of this and like you can't point to Germany and say because they make more cars per capita than Germany is ahead of us. No, there's other things that we do. We make more of per capita than Germany. I mean that doesn't that doesn't work. It, you have uh, what's what's the economic term uh, comparative advantage. Each country has its own comparative advantage. All right. So he also wants to improve the ports, waterways, and airports. He wants to spend twenty five billion on airports, seventeen billion on ports and waterways, and this includes the Healthy Ports Program to mitigate the cumulative impacts of air pollution on neighborhoods near ports, often communities of color. Of course, he's got to throw in there. He's got to make it very obvious. So. He keeps his constituents happy that I'm keeping you all in the forefront. You all are number one. All right, so one of the things he wants to do is redress historic inequities and build the future of transportation infrastructure. And he writes, the president's plan for transportation is not just ambitious in scale. It is designed with equity in mind and to set up America for the future. Too often, past transportation investments divided communities, again, talking about the interstates, like the Claiborne Expressway in New Orleans or I-81 in Syracuse, or it left out the people most in need of affordable transportation op- options. The president's plan includes $20 billion for a new program that will reconnect neighborhoods cut off by historic investments and ensure new projects, increase opportunity, advance racial equity and environmental justice, and promote affordable access. So this is a uh, very vague $20 billion that he's going to include to reconnect communities, these, these communities that were historically divided by racist policies during the Eisenhower administration. The president's plan will inspire basic research like advanced pavements that recycle carbon dioxide 
and future-proof investments that will last decades to leave coming generations with a safe, equitable, and sustainable transportation system. And he wants to have a completely renewed electric grid high, with high-speed broadband. This will eliminate all lead pipes and service lines to our drinking water systems, improving the health of our country's children and communities of color. Uh, notice, of course, the Democrats put children and communities of color in the same category. Very, very interesting how they – it's like they see these quote-unquote communities of color in a very – uh, childish, childish way, yeah, like, like they're, they're, they they need to be catered to and treated like they're helpless. Right, they're 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 Democrats' children. They got to be treated on the same level. Investment in children and communities of color. Okay, this is also going to mobilize the next generation of conservation and resilience workers. The, this ten billion dollar investment will put a new diverse generation of Americans to work conserving our public lands and waters, bolstering community resilience, and advancing environmental justice through a new get this a new civilian climate corps. What does that sound like? CCC. Remember under FDR, the Civilian Conservation Corps. This he's wanting to recreate the CCC, but instead he, of he literally he sees himself as the next FDR. Right. This he's wanting to he's ripping him his, off. He's, he's a plagiarist to, again. He's plagiarizing once again. Well, he's wanting to be the new FDR, Eisenhower, and Kennedy all in one. Oh, and Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, all in one. He basically oh, wants yeah, to take all of and the, the new Obama. Don't forget, he he he's the white Obama. Don't you know? Well, no, no, no. He <laughs> I think he sees like most of his voters, he sees Obama as inept and inadequate to the task at hand. So he's going to do what Obama. What people thought Obama was going to do but failed to do. That's really, the only people in the Democratic Party who look up to Obama as some great president are black are black Democrats. White Democrats really they, – they go along with the idea that Obama was a good president just so they don't hurt black people's feelings. So you think like even Pelosi and Schumer didn't really – No, no. Obama, Obama didn't oh. accomplish anything. I mean what did he do other than the Obamacare. ACA? That yeah, was that, it. That's actually – yeah, I guess that is actually That, that was literally all – he was pretty much a lame duck president throughout most of his time because the Republicans effectively countered everything that he proposed, and he didn't really even propose anything ambitious. It but, is interesting that uh, certainly the left, like the hard left base, like grassroots base don't like it. They think he wasn't liberal enough, you know, like the Bernie base and mm-hmm. all that. So it's – but yeah, no, that's definitely – I mean even the few other things he did, like the Dodd-Frank bill, which Trump also partially repealed and – few other things here and there. Again, he had his own stimulus bill, which didn't work at all in the slightest. But but the thing with Biden and why Biden is so much more dangerous to the right than Obama is because Biden has a lot more experience in the Senate than Obama. Obama was he didn't even fill a single term as senator. Nope. And uh, Biden knows what people want. He's got the ear. He's got the ears of the progressive movement and the moderates. And he, he knows how to he knows how to how to give everybody what they want. And that's one thing that, uh, that he is shooting for here. So he's wanting to recreate the CCC. But instead of a civilian conservation corps, because this was the thing. This is what American conservatives, progressives, socialists all agreed on throughout the 20th century is that we should have conservation. Almost everyone agreed with conservation. But now the whole thing is the climate crisis that we've gotten. We've forgotten about conservation because the, the difference is conservation preserves nature for us. It puts people at the center. The climate, this climate, civilian climate corps, it will put the earth at the center. And this is this is where the left has moved, which is extremely dangerous. They're starting to put the the earth and the environment ahead of people and the, ahead of people's needs. This kind of ties back to something that I think uh, Greg Gutfeld actually said uh, quite a few years ago that for the left, the global warming crisis, quote unquote, you know, global warming, which is a myth, but they treat it like it's real. It is to them what Islamic terrorism was to the right for the longest time before Trump came along. It's their existential crisis that this is more important than anything else. So you literally have to throw everything else aside and focus on this in order to save the world, as it were. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. Bill, he wants, also wants to build and retrofit more than 2 million structures and upgrade veterans, hospitals, and federal buildings. This includes a plan to invest $213 billion to produce, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million affordable and sustainable places to live. 
It pairs this investment with an innovative new approach to eliminate state and local exclusionary zoning laws, which drive up the cost of construction and keep families from moving to neighborhoods with more opportunities for them and their kids. It also wants to build and rehabilitate more than 500,000 homes for low middle income home buyers. Biden is also calling on Congress to take immediate steps to spur the construction and rehabilitation of homes for undeserved communities, the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. Now, what this act is, it's a House bill. I think it's already passed the House. Uh, what, what it does, it's actually not a terrible idea. You have cities in the Rust Belt, like Pittsburgh, who have houses that are over 100 years old that were built during the during the immigrant boom when we had a lot of blue-collar jobs. A lot of those houses are getting old. They're falling apart. They become dilapidated. So people leave, and they just move off, and they abandon the homes because the amount of money it would take to restore the homes is more than they could sell it for. So they just leave the homes. Then what happens, a lot of slumlords will buy them up, and they rent them out to people. And the people they rent them out to typically don't have jobs. They have very low-paying jobs, and the houses just fall into disrepair, and they become a hazard. So what this would do is it would offer a tax incentive for people to invest in these homes that would cover the difference between the amount that it takes to rehabilitate the homes and the amount it takes to sell them. So it would, once again, make it profitable to restore these historic communities like Pittsburgh that have dilapidated old Victorian working-class homes. So not necessarily a bad idea. It's actually a pretty decent idea. But if we want to – just to go back to some of the other things in this plan, he wants to invest, of course, a whole bunch of money, billions and billions of dollars into affordable housing. But the problem is affordable housing itself is a problem in this country because it creates slums. But where he wants to put these slums is key. He wants to eliminate state and local exclusionary zoning laws. So it's illegal in the, this country for people to say, OK, we want to have a Mormon community. Just We want to have a community that's only Mormons. Or we want to have a community that's only black or we want to have a community that's only people of Hispanic heritage. You can't do that. It's, that's unconstitutional. It's been ruled unconstitutional. So what people do in order to preserve communities that are at least similar to them is they can discriminate based on class. So they can say they can have covenant communities where you can only create single family housing. So you can't have apartment complexes in these communities. What the Biden administration has wanted to do is what the left has long wanted to do ever since the 60s is they want to make it illegal for – middle-class families to do that. And this is something that Trump warned about. If you elect Biden, he's going to destroy your suburbs. He's going to put housing projects right in the middle of your beautiful, clean suburbs. And what the, the Biden is going to do is he's going to tell – he's going to withhold federal funding from states and localities unless the states and localities make these covenant housing units, these areas, illegal. So if, the, if you have a town that has a middle-class suburban neighborhood – if that town doesn't make that neighborhood illegal, then they're not going to receive federal funding. And this is something that they've run on. This is something you see absolutely no pushback from from Republicans other than Trump. Where are the Republicans pushing back against this? Oh, there aren't any because they understand the history. They understand that if they come out against this, the Democrats are going to say, well, this is a legacy of Jim Crow and redlining. So you're so – what are you defending, Jim Crow? Are you defending these these houses that are mostly white, that are suburban formed by generations of people who fled the inner cities once blacks started moving into the inner cities from government housing. And Republicans don't want to have that conversation. So Republicans are quiet on this. Trump never – there was never a sacred cow that Trump wasn't afraid to kick over. That's uh, why they hated him so much. Yeah, Trump was the ultimate sacred cow tipper. For those of you who don't know what cow tipping is, it's what a lot of country kids will do, uh, what a lot of country teenagers will do, is they'll run up to farms and they'll – 
sneak up on cows and they'll push cows over because cows can't get, get back up on their feet without help. So the farmer wakes up the next day and all his ha- cows are mooing, laying on their sides because they've been tipped over. But this is Trump was the ultimate sacred cow tipper. There was that's no where, cow that he was not afraid to tip. That's where they got all the beef for Trump steaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know what they say? They say that sacred cows make for great steak. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, well, we need to make some stake out of this, but unfortunately, we don't have any Republicans with any backbone. Well, very, there are some, but very few that are actually willing to tackle this. But this is what Republicans – and uh, I don't want to beleaguer this point too much, but this is something that Republicans have done. Once Republicans voters moved to the suburbs, they just left the civil rights movement in the past, and their attitude was, OK, that's in the past. Well, let's move on to other issues and let's don't talk about that. But Repu- Democrats understood that that's a winning issue. Civil rights is a winning issue. And because Republicans aren't willing to actually go toe-to-toe with them on civil rights and have these debates, they can just bulldoze Republicans, and there's nothing Republicans are going to do about it because they're scared to death of being called racist by the media and academia. All right, so moving on. He, this job, he claims that this act is going to create jobs and wages and benefits for essential home care workers. He writes, these workers, the majority of whom are women of color, have been underpaid and undervalued for too long. The president's plan makes substantial investments in the infrastructure of our care economy, starting by creating new and better jobs for caregiving workers. This is very interesting. Why this one industry? There's lots of industries out there that could use help, but he singles out the care worker industry. If you look up the demographics of the care worker industry, it's about 41 percent white. It's about 30 percent black, and it's about 21 percent Hispanic, which means that Hispanic and especially black workers are overrepresented in this industry. So going forward, if poor white people want to get ahead under a Biden administration, under a Democratic administration, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to find out which industries black workers are most represented in, and they're going to need to start applying for jobs in those industries because those industries are going to be the ones that are subsidized. Those are the industries that the government is going to take a special interest in making sure that the wages are kept up. But what they're going to have to do, what poor white people are going to have to do is they're going to have to keep up to where black workers are at because as the federal government catches on to what they're doing, it'll start diverting resources away from professions that are starting to get too white. All right, so this bill also wants to revitalize manufacturing and investment in research and development. The plan will ensure that the best diverse minds in America are put to work creating the innovations of the future while creating hundreds of thousands of quality jobs today. Our workers will build and make things in every part of America, and they will be trained for well-paying middle-class jobs, if only. But we all know what's going to happen. They'll invest in these industries, and then they'll import foreign workers to take these jobs that Americans are being trained to do, just like with uh, with the tech industry. I would be willing to – I would actually be on board with this if I saw significant interest in the Biden administration in limiting legal immigration. But the plan will also invest $40 billion in upgrading research infrastructure and laboratories across the country, including brick-and-mortar facilities and computing capabilities and networks. Now, get this. These funds would be allocated across federal R&D agencies, including at the Department of Energy. Half of the funds, half, a full half of these funds will be reserved for historically black colleges and universities and other minority-serving institutions, including the creation of a new national lab focused on climate that will be affiliated with an HBCU. Half, a full half of this research. How much money uh, – how many students what – do, what do you suspect the percentage of students are who go to HBCUs? Black people in America represent about 14 percent of the population. Most black students don't go to HBCUs. So we're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of American students who are going to receive half of the funding that goes to our, to research and development. And they're also going to create a new national lab focused on climate that will be affiliated with an HBCU. 
In addition, this will uh, provide $55 billion in research to address the climate crisis. So he writes, discrimination leads to less innovation. One study found that innovation in the United States will quadruple if women, people of color, and children from low-income families invented at the rate of groups who are not held back at discrimination and structural barriers. Uh, I'm, I'm sure this is the thing. This is what they did. But whenever you, whenever your side of the political spectrum controls all the universities, all the media outlets, you can get. So what you do is you get your in-house priest to write up studies, and then you get your in-house scribes to publish the studies, and then you say, "See, the priest and scribes agree. This is the pro- these are the problems in our society." And then you get your your scribes and your priests to also develop ways to fix them. All right, one aspect that's actually really good about this plan is the plan to protect Americans from future pandemics. This funding provides $30 billion over four years to create U.S. jobs and prevent the severe job losses caused by pandemics through major new investments in medical countermeasures manufacturing, research and development, and related biopreparedness and biosecurity. A lot of this stuff are, are good ideas. So in, investing in research and development, investing in small businesses. This also includes $40 billion investment in a new dislocated workers program and sector-based training. This is something that we should have been doing for the past 20 years, especially with the tech industry disrupting the, uh, local economies. This funding will ensure comprehensive services for workers who have lost jobs through no fault of their own, such as what happened in the Rust Belt, to gain new skills and to get career services they need with in-demand jobs. But sector-based training programs will be focused on growing high-demand sectors such as clean energy, manufacturing, and caregiving. Again, like this is a good idea, but as usual, Democrats are going to use all the funding to reward their voters. So the clean energy sector, fossil fuel energy, you know, fossil fuel workers need not apply, and caregiving. Again, areas where they, a majority of their voters, the demographics that support their party, are overrepresented in, helping workers of all kinds to find good quality jobs in an ever-changing economy. Okay, so just a quick summary. So obviously, as as I've mentioned before on this podcast, the Democratic Party is based from two wings. You've got rich white people who care about, who believe that the world is coming to an end and want investment in clean energy. And then you have rich, upper middle class black people who don't see themselves as integrating into American society, but but they want to rise at the same level with other white elites. And so what you have is, the Democratic Party has united elites, white elites and black elites, and it has to shower both sides with the goodies, with tax dollars that they extract out of Republicans and out of Republican-led industries such as the fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry, as everyone knows, is heavily – leans heavily Republican. So by destroying – what they want to do is destroy the fossil fuel industry by building up this climate change mythology that human beings are causing climate change and that this is an existential threat to the human race and to the planet as we know it. So by destroying the fossil fuel industry, extracting wealth from Republicans and small businesses, they then want to reward their donors and their voters by showering investment on clean energy and communities of color or specifically black communities. I mean we know, we all know that Hispanic communities are going to be mostly left out of this because Hispanics are starting to vote more and more Republican. So a lot of these programs are actually not that bad. A lot, a lot of them are things that I hope Republicans get behind. I mean some of the stuff like the, the discrimination against white people, this is just something that white people are going to have to accept is going to happen under a Democratic administration. If they don't want this to happen, well, they should start voting for Republicans. They should stop supporting Democrats. But in the meantime, while this discrimination is taking place, a lot of this stuff still needs to get passed, like investment in workers who are laid off because of factory closures. Whose you know whose whose jobs have been shut down through changing economy, they need to be retrained so they can reorient their skills into another industry. Uh, another thing that's that's really good about this is the planning for future pandemics. Most of what he wants to do in infrastructure, 
I mean, our our roads and bridges have been crumbling for a while. Our airports. This is something that was that that was a big shame on our country during the Obama years. It was bad during Bush, but because there was hardly any investment in our airports under Obama. The airports were absolutely terrible. So I remember thinking if someone goes to Europe, a foreigner goes to Europe and then comes to America, they're going to think they just entered a third world country. <laughs> so this is like – and then the roads you know, the roads are full of potholes and everything. So our infrastructure has been bad. Airports have been particularly bad and subpar for a first world country. A lot of this is going to be negotiated now because obviously uh, Joe Manchin is not going to get rid of the filibuster. So both Republicans and people on the right in the Democratic Party like Joe Manchin – they need to cut all this wasteful spending on climate initiatives. Every generation can always look back at times when the climate was different. Just because the climate changes doesn't mean we need to blow hundreds of billions of dollars of American tax dollars to, you know, to get basically what this is. This is just graft. This is strict. This is straight up corruption. The earth is going to be fine. This is something that needs to be completely cut. Republicans should not vote for any for one cent that goes to any of this climate change nonsense. Another thing that Republicans need to negotiate, the, the, the discriminatory aspects, because a lot of this is going to end up getting challenged in the Supreme Court. Farmers, as we speak, are bringing a class action lawsuit against the Biden administration for the discrimination that they face in the American Rescue Plan. All right, so how to pay for it. Biden wants to pay for this by increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Under Obama, it was 35%. For frame of reference in the EU, I think the average in the EU is what it is currently in the U.S., 21%. It's uh, Some of them are 17, others it's like 25%. Germany, it's 27, 28% is, has, is the highest. In Ireland, it's all the way down to, I think, 15% or 11%. So that's why a lot of companies are relocating to Ireland and their economy is really boomed. You know, have much sympathy for corporations after the way corporations have treated our American nation. We've been, we've been very clear about that, that 2020 was the year that the right really – finally started to learn that corporations are actually bad. But the thing about this is this isn't just major – this isn't just hit major corporations. This hits small businesses as well. Small businesses yeah. have to pay the corporate tax rate. So you know, it, I would be fine like raising this a couple of percentage points to pay for some of the investment that needs to be done in infrastructure. Um, I also would like to see our government uh, – another thing I didn't mention is uh, Biden, because he loves Amtrak so much, he's going to invest a bunch into like I think $70 billion into Amtrak, which is sorely needed. Amtrak definitely needs it. I would that prefer, is him just further pandering to you know his Pennsylvania roots, though, like but, Amtrak Joe. But I would prefer we actually – because Amtrak was actually created in order to try to phase out train travel because back whenever we created the interstate system, the assumption was Americans will stop traveling on, by trains altogether. So they created Amtrak to try to eventually wean people off of trains. But because there's still a significant amount of interest in train travel, Amtrak has persisted through all these years despite being underfunded. I would prefer we – completely eliminate Amtrak, move toward a system of privately owned high-speed rail. So if train travel was treated the same way as interstates, the government would build the railroads and private companies would build the trains. They would fund the trains and they would collect the, the tickets, kind of like you have in the with road travel. The government builds the roads and you have private companies who build the cars. That's the way it should be with train travel. This tax plan also places a minimum corporate tax rate at 21% and calculates it on a country-by-country by country basis. This is actually a really good idea because what corporations will do is they'll just move their headquarters to another country or their outsource, and they'll avoid paying the tax rate. This eliminates that possibility. So they're going to have to pay 21% tax across the board and from foreign profits. So what we were doing in the, in the past is we would make corporations pay a flat rate, and so they would just – what they would do is they would use – like companies in Germany to shield tax havens. This calculates it on a country by country basis. So even in countries that have a low tax rate, let's say they move to a country that has an eight percent corporate tax rate, 
So what the Biden administration is going to do is say, okay, well, we'll deduct that 8%, but you're also going to have to pay an additional 13% to make up for it. It also eliminates the first 10% exemption on profits overseas. So what currently corporations are able to exempt the first 10% of profits they make overseas, which is ridiculous. We shouldn't be rewarding people for outsourcing jobs, which is what our current tax structure does. It also denies deduction to foreign corporations from countries that don't have a minimum corporate tax rate. It also makes it harder for U.S. corporations to invert, meaning to merge with a foreign corporation to hide where their corporation is based. Because what we're currently doing is a lot of corporations, they'll be based in the U.S. and they'll have a joint ownership with a foreign corporation to make it to avoid paying the U.S. tax. So this eliminates that possibility. It puts a 15% minimum tax on the income corporations use to report their profits to investors, known as a book income. This will completely backstop the tax plan's other ambitious reforms. And this applies only to the largest corporations. So no corporation, no matter how big, will ever be able to pay, under this tax plan, will ever be able to pay less than 15% tax on all of its profits. It eliminates tax preferences for fossil fuels and makes sure polluting industries pay for environmental cleanup. Again, this is just showing preference to his preferred green energy companies. Now on the income tax, the top income tax bracket would go from 37% to 39.6%. Again, not a big deal. I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean... I would be fine taxing the tax, the top earners at 45%. I don't really care. They uh, they definitely – I mean most of them supported Biden anyway, so they deserve Th- it. That is also something that Bannon similarly proposed. He actually wanted to raise taxes significantly on the, the ultra-wealthiest, like the NFL athletes and like the Wall Street types. Like So that that too is, again, something that the, the populist right, like the Trump base could possibly get behind. If this was the 1950s, I would probably support a flat income tax rate. Like anyone making above the poverty line – pays a flat 25% tax rate or whatever. But I don't really have – and this is something that Republicans would probably oppose. But like Marco Rubio, who uh, supported unionization of Amazon workers because Amazon supported BLM, this is kind of where Republicans are. It's like, well, ordinarily we would stand up for you, but since you decided to support Biden and support BLM, you're on your own. In addition, taxpayers with incomes over a million dollars would pay a tax of 43.4% on capital gains. It would also increase the long-term capital gains rate from 20% to almost doubling it to 39.6%. So this is something that the Cato Institute's podcast was really complaining about because this is going to hurt tech innovation. This is going to hurt the tech oh, industry. Oh, boy. Here so we go. This Cato. Is some, <laughs> this is never, that, never a dull moment when Cato is brought up. So this is something that, again, ordinarily Republicans would fight this tooth and nail. The reason yes. why the money in this country has shifted from Republicans to Democrats is because of the tech revolution. You had a lot of nerdy geeks who ordinarily in, the, in 100 years ago or 50 years ago would have become math teachers have now become instant billionaires because of tech. Now, these people ordinarily would be liberal. They would be socially liberal, but they are, their influence would be limited in the 70s and 80s. Nowadays, they have unlimited influence because they're billionaires and they can outspend people who support gun rights, people who support the Constitution, people who support the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, yeah, this is probably going to – this is going to hurt a lot of the Silicon Valley types who supported Biden, but, uh, you know – I'm it's not really, Trump change for them. I'm not really for it, but is, this is going to be pain. This is going to be very painful. This is this is doubling. The, this is essentially doubling the capital gains tax. Uh, I'm not really for that kind of tax rate, but again, you know, hey, they 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 burned all the sympathy they would have had with the right by supporting social liberalism and going woke. So tough luck. This is this is the one issue I could possibly have is that you could argue that this might constitute chump change for them like that they won't feel the burn of this too much and then subsequently like if say this goes along with kind of the things that bannon proposed just raise taxes like crazy on these ultra wealthy people they could easily just you know 
yeet all of their accounts out of America, <laughs> just send all their money to offshore accounts and whatnot. That's why the other corporate poll closures that Biden is wanting to implement, I think they're actually good things because they stop a lot of the offshore. They plug oh. a lot of those holes to keep these these corporations and individuals from offshoring their money. No, oh, that actually isn't bad, I guess. He also wants to increase the payroll taxes for earners making more than $400,000. There's not a lot about this tax plan that I have major issues with. I, I don't like the favoritism toward clean energy fuels. Uh, I don't think the government should be playing favorites in that. Just like I don't think the government should have been playing favorites for the auto industry back in the 50s and 60s when it essentially killed train travel. But that's kind of really my only complaint. He has kept his promise not to raise taxes on people making less than $400,000 for now, for, for according to this plan. Yeah, I, that is the thing, again, that we've talked about is that 2020 is the year that really made me realize I don't support corporations. I don't support the 1%. I don't want to go full Occupy Wall Street and burn down the whole system, but there are serious problems with capitalism that can be traced back to the actions, the political inclinations, especially of the ultra-wealthy. So if they really – and again, like for example, this is where we can be united with someone like Elizabeth Warren who still wants to break up big tech while acknowledging they don't have our best interests at heart necessarily in their motivations. Their end goal still is more or less to screw over the rich. I can be, I can be for that for the most part if, we, if, if, if this focused a little bit more like Bannon would have on the ultra-wealthy, the NFL players, the Colin Kaepernicks, the, the Zuckerbergs, the people who really are the biggest problems – then by all means, because of course, yeah, if you're going after people who do make over four hundred thousand, you are going to hit, you know, maybe the the owner of a car dealership who makes a good amount of money and did vote for Donald Trump. You know that 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 is the problem. There is going to be some. There's going to be some casualties here. But yeah, this isn't. This certainly isn't the worst thing Biden has proposed. Not by far, in my opinion. But here's the disconnect between the rank and file voters on the right and the party that is supposed to represent them, the Republican Party. What you're going to hear as this bill is debated, is a nonstop barrage of criticism against this bill because it's, it raises the top bracket from 37% to 39.6%. That 2.6% increase in the top marginal rate of the income tax is what you're going to hear nonstop from right-wing talk radio. You're going to hear nonstop from Fox News talking heads as if it's the end of the world that they have to pay 2.6% more on their income in federal taxes. They have convinced these Republican voters to vote for them based on social issues. So the Republican voters, they think that if they vote for Republicans, that they will protect them from racial discrimination from the Democrats. But instead of criticizing the Democrats for racial discrimination against white people, they won't even utter the words white people. Instead, they attack them for raising their own tax rates because that's really what it boils down to. This is why the right does not win. The leadership is interested in corporate tax cuts and the and tax cuts on the top marginal income rates because the people at the bottom are interested in family. They're interested in nation. They're interested in patriotism. They're interested in history and heritage and maintaining these things and maintaining a sense of unity and national pride in their country. They're interested in things like rebuilding statues that leftist mobs tore down last summer, things yes. that people at, that work at Fox News couldn't care less about. They talked about it for like a few minutes because of the dramatic footage and for some headlines to generate buzz and to get people riled up, but they didn't they didn't follow up on the substantial policy issues of how do we fix this. Right. And again, Trump did. Trump did do that with some of his ex executive orders to bring the hammer down on vandals who tore down statues, but he, as one man, could only do so much. 
this needs to be emphasized. This is one of the biggest spending plans in American history. So it's understandable why a lot of people are already just fiercely opposed to it in every way possible just because it's a ton of spending. But we need to look at this and understand. Again, we know the election was stolen. The election was stolen from Trump. Trump won legitimately. But let's pretend that Trump lost legitimately and that why else would that be if that was the case? Because a handful of voters who voted for him, who previously voted for Obama, they voted for Obama, then voted for him, then went back to vote for Biden. They did so because they maybe believed, especially the working class voters in the Rust Belt, believe, okay, maybe Biden will deliver on even more policies to help us out. And Biden is trying to do that or at least project the image that he is doing that with infrastructure. He's kind of performed this little shotgun marriage situation between traditional infrastructure spending and global warming, as you talked about, to appease the left, obviously, the the radical leftists in his base and the donors that are also heavily behind this, like the big tech people. But there are a few good things to point out in this bill that should, if nothing else, you should look at this and think this is where the Republican Party, this is where the right, the institutional right could and should be doing better to appeal to those voters, to those voters who, again, not the socially liberal, fiscally conservative, which is what you hear a lot of talked about, like in the California Republican Party, but the socially conservative and the fiscally liberal, the union voters, the working class voters, the disenfranchised voters in the Rust Belt, the former auto workers. That's why they would support a guy like Biden on paper. Not again, not the Biden that is completely controlled by a much more radically left party that would rather talk about race relations. But the old school, again, he's hearkening back to FDR. So they're thinking, oh, yeah, FDR, his social programs like Social Security, those are still around, Medicare. We, we should support someone like that. This is where the right can learn from him and, again, learn from Trump because Trump is ahead of curve on some of these things and realize, okay, the sooner we ditch this stupid obsession with government spending bad, we just got to focus on the national debt and the you know, federal tax rates, and that's all that we care about. That's all our voters care about. No, that's not what they care about. This is why if the Republican Party doesn't learn fast, doesn't learn from Trump's example, doesn't learn from what Biden's example – if they don't learn fast enough, then they are going to be completely crushed and they're going to be completely crushed in 2022 and 2024 and 2028 and beyond. And all Trump will be able to do is say, hey, I told you so. And that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Tune in next week for episode 20. And again, you can keep up to date with all of our latest postings on alternative social media, on Gab and on Minds. You can follow us on the video sharing platforms, YouTube, BitChute and Rumble, and find a full list of all the various podcast platforms where we are available at our website, righttakepodcast.com slash contact. We'll talk to you next week, guys.